Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is March the 31st, 2017. This is episode 1974 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That means we, and I can't give you the big echoing one. I'm still struggling with my voice issues. Um... But, uh, you know, it is a Friday, so we're going to have the Expert Council show. These are questions you have for the Expert Council members. I've got a good group up on deck for you today. I've got the skinny on that, you know, Gerber life insurance for your new baby. It's supposed to be such a great deal from John Pugliano. Uh, I have questions about Zika when traveling for Dr. Bones. I have getting paid by your farm customers from Darby Simpson. I have expanding lighting for microgreens from Stephen Harris. I have Life in the Travel Trailer from Gary Collins, and I have Making Duck Egg Quiche from Chef Keith Snow. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheets, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Survivalist Box, a monthly subscription box service for the modern survivalist. You sign up to receive a box each month, and your preparedness purchases are on autopilot. Go to survivalistbox.com or check them out at the TSP, direct, TSP Business Directory to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1974 because the episode is 1974. I have the release of Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, contributed by Andy Candy Graham for Mongo, who's a new contributor, I guess. We have... The heir to the Hearst fortune has been kidnapped, sort of, by Alex Shrugged. We have World War II is still raging by, raging by Southpaw Ben, and the story of the last two holdouts to surrender from Japan. He had 1974. And we have Contact, sending a message to the stars without waiting for a reply, contributed by Alex Shrugged. Not sure which of those I'm going to read yet. Let's go ahead and take a look at the bullet points. Notable births. Chris Kyle uh, died in two thir- 2013, age 38, shot by a man with PTSD, remains the most lethal sniper in American history. Carrie Byron, Mythbusters team member. Kate Moss, supermodel. In movies, Christian Bale and Joaquin Phoenix. Amy Adams and Leonardo DiCaprio are born this year. In comedy, Jimmy Fallon and Seth Green are born this year. This year in film, Death Wish from Charles Bronson. In comedy, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein and The Longest Yard. The original one, not the one with Adam Sandler, guys. Disaster films, Airport 1975, The Towering Inferno and Earthquake. This year in TV, Happy Days with Ron Howard, Little House on the Prairie with Michael Landon, Nova, the science show on PBS, and The Rockford Files, tongue-in-cheek detective show with James Garner. It's all stuff I grew up watching, man. This year in music, Monkey from Pink, Monkey, Money from Pink Floyd, Kung Fu Fighting from Carl Douglas, Waterloo from ABBA, 
smoking in the boys' room from Brownsville Station, not Montley Crew. They covered it in around, I think, 85. Uh, hooked on a feeling from Blue Swede. Uh, and we also have the Sheeran Video Games. The first video game magazine is published. Peter uh, Playmeter focuses on arcade games. Auto racing games are introduced. Grand Trek 10 is the first speed race feature collision detection. That is when you run into something, the game realizes it. There were no hardware graphics chips helping you out, guys. It's math, and it's hard to do. Alex shrugged, early, early video game programmer. NASA creates the first first-person shooter game, Maze War. With the Apollo prog program and mothballs, NASA has a lot of free time on its hands. In other news, show me the money. Congress visits the gold at Fort Knox. As of this writing, it will also be the last time. President Nixon resigns. Serious calls for impeachment after Watergate cover-up forces him out of office. Looking at, at what Bill Clinton did, Nixon must be spinning in his grave. President Gerald Ford pardons Nixon. I thought he was innocent. What does an innocent guy need a pardon for? This does not go over with the voting public very well. Hello, Jimmy Carter. So I'm going to read for you. The heir to the Earth's fortune has been kidnapped, sort of. Contributed by Alex Shrugged. As a child, Patty Hearst would play amongst the statues of Hearst Castle. Today, the family fortune is smaller, but is still a hefty amount. Patty is now 19 years old, living with her fiancé in a fourplex in Berkeley. There is a knock at the door. Shots are fired, and the heir to the Earth's fortune is kidnapped. The kidnappers identify themselves as the Sibonese Liberation Army. They want peace and harmony now, or they'll blow your head off. Yep, they are Maoists. The SLA demands that the Hearst family donate a week's worth of groceries to every poor person in California. They can't do it, although they do establish a food bank. Months later, the SLA robs a bank. The bank video shows Patty Hearst. She has renamed herself Tanya, and she's holding an M1 carbine. Her picture becomes an icon for the 1970s. Eventually, she is taken into custody and put on, put on trial. Her defense is she was brainwashed. This is not a proper legal defense, so she is sentenced to seven years in prison. Yet another rich girl finds the world can be an unforgiving place no matter how much money her daddy makes. My take by Alex Shrugged. President Jimmy Carter commuted Patty Hearst's sentence to time served. At that point, it was 22 months. The idea of Stockholm Syndrome was not fully appreciated at the time. Later, President Clinton pardoned her. Is there really such a thing as brainwashing? Not really, but it is possibly possible to bully people through physical stress, threats, and indoctrination. I don't know if this has really happened to Patty, but it seems reasonable to think so. Patty has returned to her life. She married a policeman, one of the security detail that guarded her while she was out on bond. He has since passed away. Now she writes, takes small parts in movies, and raises dogs. Life goes on. Um, I think people can become full-on brainwashed, not just Stockholm Syndrome. I think if you stress a person long enough the right way, you can get a person into a point where they're compliant and will do your bidding for you. I don't think that was what happened to Patty Hearst. I think maybe she had some Stockholm Syndrome, but I don't think she was fully brainwashed. Whenever I hear of Patty Hearst, I actually think of the uh, song by Wa Warren Zevin, uh, Rolling the Thompson Gunner. And it ends, the final verse of that song is, Patty Hearst heard the burst of Roland's Thompson gun and bought it. And you have to actually know the story to get it, because it almost sounds like whoever this Patty Hearst chick is um, died. You know, that, that's you know, so the guy bought the farm, that type of bought it. But if you if you know the story of Patty Hearst, you get what Warren was saying. Um, the whole the whole song uh, "Rolling a Thompson Gunner" is about corruption and about uh, conniving and about backstabbing 
and about how people can be paid to do evil things and yet believe they're doing the right thing. So Patty Hearst heard the burst and she bought it as if she bought into it. It's just a little side note there for me on today's history segment. All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. So go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts. Counts for you. NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, the Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today, click on members to learn more, and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. I guess with that, we'll go ahead and get into the uh, the first question of the day for an expert council member. I'm going to tell you I'm not going to be batting cleanup today. Um, I'll just do my usual sign-off and tell you about the song of the day. As you can hear, my voice is kind of stressed, and I've got to get things done early today. Uh, we have the viewing for my father-in-law this afternoon into this evening, so I need to wrap things up. And Of course, this has been a, uh, a difficult week. Family in town from uh, all over, including some in from the Netherlands. And a uh, stressful time for my wife and I, so I'm going to just let you know we're going to go you know, kind of easy on Jack's part of today's show, and I'm going to coast a little bit, uh, but uh, I wanted to make sure we got this show out for you today. So our first question today is on Gerber, the Gerber Grow-Up Plan, life insurance, you know, for your baby, a whole life for your baby. It's an investment in their future and can help them pay for college. Is that really how this all works? John Pugliano, man, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our financial question comes from Chris, and Chris is asking about Gerber Baby Life Insurance. Yeah, Gerber Baby Food, they also market life insurance. Is it a good deal? Well, I'm just going to give you my opinion, Chris. I personally am not a fan of it for a couple reasons. One reason being, it's permanent life insurance. Another name for that is whole life insurance. Now, I'm not opposed to permanent life insurance, especially for people that have large estates, you know, something in excess of $5 million. And if they're using whole life insurance as part of an estate planning life insurance policy, well, I don't have any problem with that. But I don't think that a whole life insurance policy is appropriate for just your average child. I think if you do some Googling around on that, you'll see that other people like Dave Ramsey would agree with me. I won't speak specifically about Gerber's policy, but some of these similar things that I've seen offered for children, they have a very attractive price. You know, they're only maybe 5 or $10 a month, which seems affordable because they're not only providing life insurance, but they're also providing a long-term investment strategy. But when you dig down into the numbers, you know, your cash balance after 18 years comes out to something like, you know, a few hundred dollars. I don't think that's a good return on my investment. You have to do your own research and see if it fits into what your goals and objectives are. Also, Chris, in your email, you mentioned that you and your wife have your own uh, life insurance policies in place. What I would do is I would contact your current provider, and I would almost bet you that they have some type of a rider policy that you can purchase for a very small amount of money. I think uh, when my kids were little, I bought a family plan that was something like 
I don't know, $10 a year, maybe even less. That was $10 a year, not a month, and it was not per individual child, but it was to ensure all of my children, I had six of them, so for a simple $10 annual fee, all my children were insured for, you know, I don't know, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 of term life insurance until they reached the age of, you know, I don't remember if it was 18 or 21. I would almost bet that your life insurance policy provides something like that as well. That's something I would look into. The thing to always remember about any financial product is that it's a tool. And like all tools, they work best when you use them for their primary intended purpose. In my opinion, the primary intended purpose of life insurance is to provide protection to dependent beneficiaries in the event that the income earner passes away. So as a parent, we have responsibilities to raise and educate and protect our children. We have that responsibility whether we're living or dead. And so what I think prudent, responsible parents do is that they purchase term life insurance that would be in a large multiple of their annual income, something maybe like 10 times your, your annual income, that should you pass away, your spouse would receive that, and that would be money that could be used to raise your dependent children until they reach an age of accountability of, you know, whatever you see fit. You know, something when they're able to go out and make a living and be responsible for themselves. Now, of course, if you have a dependent that relies on you, that is disabled or has some other type of mental or physical condition that precludes them from being able to work, then you would obviously want to have an insurance policy in place to take care of them throughout their life. But generally, for most people, I think term life insurance that covers you until your children are adult age is what's appropriate. Chris, those are just my thoughts and opinions on it. And hey, while we're talking about Gerber, on a related topic, but something that's completely different. When some people think of Gerber, they think of Gerber knives. Now, I personally, if I were looking for a quality knife, I wouldn't buy a Gerber knife. I'd go to our friend Patrick Rohrman, who's a true craftsman. Check out his products over at MT Knives. Chris, thanks for your question. Don't forget to check out my new YouTube channel. I've got five videos up there, including one that'll teach you how to very easily track a moving average with Yahoo Finance. And also my most recent, which explains why my portfolio is heavily weighted in international stocks. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Next, we have a question for Doc Bones on someone traveling into an area where Zika is actually a problem. Doc Bones, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. Now with over 900 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Kevin, who writes, I'm planning to travel to St. George's K Resort, Belize, at the end of June, along with my wife and six-month child. The CDC recommends taking level two precautions to prevent the transmission of Zika, which I can get off their website. The recommendation is not Zika, of course. <laughs> my sister is getting married in Belize at the resort. Currently, my wife and I are planning on going, bringing our six-month-old son. She's currently breastfeeding him, so leaving him at home is not much of an option. I could travel alone, 
but I would prefer to bring my wife and son, obviously. They have recommendations above and beyond what the CDC recommends. Should I even consider traveling to Belize, given the recent advent of the Zika virus? If you feel that purchasing your book, The Zika Virus Handbook, indeed, I wrote a book called The Zika Virus Handbook, that would help me be more informed, I will do it. Well, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit about your question and your specific situation. Kevin, according to the CDC, the Aedes mosquito has populations in Belize, a Central American country formerly known as British Honduras, and it's thought to be currently spreading the disease. You don't hear much about Zika lately, but it's still causing trouble in places like Brazil, where babies are still being born with abnormally small heads, a condition called microcephaly, and other problems. You mentioned the CDC recommendations, and let's go over those a little bit. The CDC recommends the following to prevent Zika transmission. They are, first and foremost, that you shouldn't travel there if you or your wife are contemplating becoming pregnant any time in the near future. For women, it's eight weeks at least. For men, it's six months or more. You didn't mention future plans for your family, so I wanted to mention that. That is indeed a factor. You did mention the CDC instructions on Zika. These are good advice. There's no vaccine or medicine for Zika, and so you can protect yourself somewhat by preventing mosquito bites, right? Cover exposed skin by wearing long sleeve shirts, long sleeve pants. Use EPA registered insect repellents, including DEET, oil of lemon eucalyptus, uh, picaridin, IR3535, and always use them as directed. By the way, pregnant and breastfeeding women can use these EPA-registered insect repellents, including DEET, by the way. Most repellents, including DEET, can be used on children older than two months, and so that's important in your situation. The only one that may not be a good idea is the oil of lemon eucalyptus. That's best in kids over three years. Use permethrin-treated clothing and gear, such as uh, boots, pants, socks, and tents. You can use pre-treated clothing. They actually have clothing pre-treated with this stuff, permethrin, P-E-R-M-E-T-H-R-I-N, or treat your clothing yourself. Now, stay in places that have air conditioning and window and door screens to keep mosquitoes outside. I assume that this place would be having those amenities. Uh, And sleep under a mosquito bed net if air conditioner screen rooms aren't available. And by the way, mosquito netting is probably a pretty good idea. In any case, they certainly can be used to cover babies that are young. Think babies that are in like strollers and certainly cover the crib with it so that they are protected as much as possible from mosquito bites. And remember that Zika can be spread by sexual contact. If you have sex, just about any type, while traveling, you should use condoms. There isn't any hard data to show that Zika virus can affect the brain of six-month-old infants that weren't previously infected, but it has been shown to continue causing damage in infants that were infected as fetuses. We still have so much to learn about the Zika virus that my general recommendation to you, Kevin, and the rest of the Survival Podcast family is to see America first. There's Zika, but there's also a lot of other tropical diseases in Central America. If you must go, however, follow the CDC guidelines to the letter and invest in some mosquito netting to take to cover the baby's crib and stroller 
Don't forget the mosquito repellent for children. Apply it to your hands first and then to the baby. This is especially important with regards to the face. Mosquito repellent, remember, goes over the sunscreen. Allow the sunscreen 15 minutes to absorb first. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Hey, make an old man, that's me, very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, Facebook at Doom and Bloom, and YouTube's DR Bones, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy channel, and by getting a copy of our 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. Available at Amazon and on our website at doomandbloom.net. And don't forget, Member Support Brigade gets a coupon code for a discount off anything in Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and supplies. Check them out at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Good stuff from old Doc Bones. Now I have a question for Darby Simpson on uh, collections, you know, like making sure that the people that promise to pay you for your product actually pay you for your product, specifically from the angle of being a farmer. But I think this would apply to just about any businesses where services or products may be rendered with some sort of terms, net 10, net 20, net 30, something like that. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everybody. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life podcast. I am calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. And this week, I have a question from Josh down in Texas. Josh is transitioning into full-time farming this spring, and he is wanting my advice about how to deal with restaurants, co-ops, and stores in terms of how do you go about setting limits of when to collect payment from them? He's wanting to know, you know, how, how much credit should he extend to them or should he only want to get cash uh, upon delivery when he takes his products in? He's really kind of struggling with, you know, how to set this whole thing up. And he, uh, as he states it, he, you know, he's start, he's starting a farm. He doesn't want to also start a bank where he has got tons and tons of credit extended to, uh, you know, all, all of these new accounts. So, Josh, this is a great question. And honestly, this is something a lot of people don't think about when they transition into full-time farming. We get so laser-focused on the production side and soil regeneration and all this stuff that we, as farmers, can tend to forget that, oh, yeah, by the way, we're running a business, and we've, we've got to figure that out, too. So let me tell you... Um, well, a couple of things. In the interest of full disclosure, I really don't work with a whole lot of, of stores and restaurants anymore. But when I first started out, that was basically my entire model because I wasn't doing farmer's markets. And in order to scale things up quickly, I pounded the pavement and um, had a lot of success getting quite a few accounts set up with different stores and restaurants um, in the, the greater uh, Indianapolis area and also in Bloomington, Indiana. And that worked pretty well for us. And in, in most cases, it was okay. So, you know, in terms of, you know, well, how, uh, how much credit do you extend to these, these different accounts? It kind of depends. Um, if you're working with more of a, a corporate entity, then most likely you're not going to be able to get payment upon delivery. They're going to have to take that invoice. They're going to have to, you know, kick it over. Uh, to someone in another department who's going to have to process it and then, you know, cut you a check uh, and you'll, you'll get that check in the mail, you know, at some point in the future. My strong suggestion to you on those accounts is to be very firm in that you expect payment 
within, you know, 15 days or, or maybe 30 days, they may dictate to you a little bit how fast they'll get payment to you, depending on the size of the entity you're working with. But I, and under no circumstances would I want to take payments, you know, more, more than 30 days out. And I wouldn't be extending them credit, um, you know, to your point and your, your question you asked about, well, should I, I let them have, you know, $2,000 credit and still take them another order or something like that? Um, I, I think you only do that if you've got a history with this client and they've been good about paying you um, and you've, they've never fed you a, a bunch of uh, lines and excuses about why they couldn't pay you or something like that. So I, th I think that, you know, if you've got a relational history with them, uh, that it is okay in certain instances maybe to do that, but be very, very careful with it. Um, you know, when I, when I first started, uh, there was a restaurant that shall remain nameless that my, my wife and I had actually gone out to, to dinner at, um, a couple of years before we started farming and it's very popular. I'm not going to say famous, but very popular in the central Indiana area, you know, fine dining. Uh, this has been, 12 years ago or 11 years ago when we ate in there and Josh back then, uh, it was very, very easy to go in there, you know, with two people and to drop 150 to 200 bucks. Now, maybe to some people listening to this, you think, well, that's not that much money on a meal in central Indiana where we've got a pretty low cost of living. That's still a lot of money to drop on a meal today, let alone 10, 11 years ago. So my point is this is a high end restaurant with a lot of cash flow coming in. They were actually um, my first restaurant that I made a sale to and that uh, the first restaurant that I reached out to actually when I started farming full time. And I was so excited when I got my first order uh, and, and delivered 20 whole chickens to them. And I, I was so excited about that that I, I hadn't even thought through this entire process that you're asking about here. So I didn't really, you know, uh, have anything in mind when I took that, that delivery in. Um, I hadn't set up boundaries. I hadn't defined any of that. And I just kind of went along with what the chef owner told me was that, well, you know, typically uh, farmers, you know, they, they, they drop off the product, they drop off an invoice, and then we'll just we'll shoot you a check out, uh, you know, in the, in the next week or two. And I was like, okay, well, that, that sounds great. Well, I left my invoice, I left my chickens, and... A few weeks go by and I, I don't get anything in the mail and, you know, um, I'm getting, getting a little frustrated. So I, so I call the chef and I, I, I get to run around about, you know, well, yeah, well, you know, I had to, had to find a new sous chef and I just haven't had time to, to deal with, uh, you know, all the billing, blah, 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 blah. I'll get it out to you. Well, then, you know, a few more weeks go by and I call and I get another excuse. And then a few more weeks go by and I call and I get another excuse. And long story made short, I chased about a $300 check for roughly, I want to say 90 to 100 days before I got paid. And I thought to myself, never again. I, number one, I don't have time. I do not have time to be chasing money, and neither do you. There are so many things you've got to get done in a day that you just don't have time to mess around with, with chasing money. Um, and, you know, number two, I mean, when you're first starting out, and, and even if you're not starting out, you know, it, you know, 300 bucks to us back then felt like $3,000. I mean, that was critical cash flow for our fledgling business. So I couldn't be extending credit, you know, to, to anyone for a couple of weeks, let alone three and a half months. So I, I would, if it were me, 
just set set the expectation right from the get go that it, we expect you know payment upon delivery, and I think that that's pretty easy to do if you're talking about a you know a mom and pop owned place, uh, if that's a, a restaurant or a store or whatever. Like there's no reason that they can't do that. They they might seem a little bit frustrated by it or something, but honestly, if if they place an order and you say, hey, I'll, I'll be there on you know Wednesday afternoon at three o'clock, um, if you send them the invoice ahead of time, there's no reason they can't have a check there waiting on you, or you know that they can't like have someone there who can write you a check upon delivery. So that is my strong suggestion to you. Again, if you have relationships with people, maybe that changes over time. Maybe if it's different if you're working with a corporate entity. But my strong advice is to set a, a uh, payment upon delivery uh, system in place and just set that expectation from the beginning. And you know, if you define it that way from the get-go, then hopefully people aren't going to have an issue with it. And if they have a really, really strong issue with it, tread carefully and make a decision. But if it's a mom-and-pop place, I'd probably tend to shy away from maybe doing business with them very much. Um, you know, you just have to kind of feel them out and see what you think, man. Josh, I appreciate you sending in this question. This is uh, this is really good. Um, you know, and this is this is something I love talking with people about, you know, is the marketing and the business side of farming. I think it's so important and uh, I just appreciate you taking the time to, to put all the detail into this and send it into the show so that I could uh, answer it for you. Hopefully this has been helpful. If you have any other uh, follow-up questions, just shoot me an email, man. And I will be happy to try and help you out. Um, if, for anybody else that's listening to this, Hey, if you found this interesting, um, I, I'm part of a, a weekly podcast called grass fed life that is done with Diego footer at permaculturevoices.com. And we've got over 50 hours of topics ranging from how to raise all these different animals to how to market it, how to set up sales models. And we address things just like this, um, you know, in great detail on that podcast. So I'd encourage you to, to go out to permaculturevoices.com and check that out, or you can find grass fed life in, in the iTunes store. Uh, give it a download, give it a listen, see what you think. Uh, there's a lot of great content out there. Um, if you'd like to learn more about me, you can head out to darbysimpson.com and, Check out my website there. I do offer one-on-one -on -one consulting. If you're a, um, a TSP MSB member, you do get a 10% discount on that. You can find the discount code uh, in your MSB discount section. Uh, as always, Jack, thanks for kicking this one over to me. Everyone have a great weekend and take care. Bye-bye. So uh, my addition to this real, real brief is simply that we have quite a few stores and restaurants that we sell in. And we get paid on delivery to all of them, all of them. So it's it's with smaller restaurants like you'll probably be dealing with, it's always possible. We had one account that did not pay on delivery. And the way that worked is we had a large restaurant uh, that was very far from us. So they were using a food service. They were actually picking it up, marking it up, and selling it to them. And eventually they decided to take us off the menu because of cost because the, it wasn't our cost it was the cost for them to get the product because it was so far from them and we were not going to deliver it just wasn't going to happen that was one of these organizations like darby's talking about where there's you know one department does things like pick up the stuff and another department does something like pay the bills and we were generally paid within two weeks uh like clockwork uh that was just how long their process took for it to come through and dorothy was pretty strict and this is how it went our customer wants the product and you're in the middle Okay, don't forget that. 
Um, and if we have not received a check uh, by the time we're supposed to, then no more product for you. And I think it only happened one time. I think we ended up doing, like we said no product, and then we said, well, we'll do it this week, but we better be made you know, whole by the end of next week for the week you owe us for and the week you still, you know, that you'll owe us for by then. And we always had on-time payments from then. So I'm going to suggest that one of the things that small business people can do when you're dealing with restaurants and things and corporate-level accounts is you can explain that you're a small business. That you're starting out, that you you know, you, the cash flow is a very important thing to you. And many times, b businesses that will you know will will mail you a check or whatever will come around and be able to pay you on demand or pay you on delivery, I should say, because most restaurants that you're going to be able to sell to now stores it may be different, but most restaurants that you're going to be able to sell to uh, are going to be you know restaurants that pay their own bills anyway. So there is someone there with the authority to write a check. And if you're doing regular deliveries, even if the amount varies, or if they're doing a pickup, you know, they know in advance what the cost is going to be. So when, you know, we, we have a unit price with, uh, with the ranch in Las Colinas, is one of our restaurant customers. Uh, either their head chef or one of their sous chefs picks up our eggs once a week. Uh, or sometimes they get a bunch and they do it every two weeks. They'll text Dorothy in advance. So when they come get the eggs, they bring a check. Because the restaurant manager or the head chef both have signatory authority on, on the checks. So you, it's not always the case that just because an account's commercial that you can't get you know uh, payment on delivery. Many times you can, especially if it's going to be a regular customer. Uh, however, please understand there's nothing wrong with being paid you know by check by mail. Uh, you know again, one to two weeks out, I have no problem with. That's a standard practice for a lot of businesses. And you got to think about it this way. If they were stiffing people, they wouldn't stay in business for very long. So if they're a, a, a reputable outlet, you know, you can probably trust them. But, you know, the old Russian quote from Reagan, trust but verify. So if they go past that first time, no more product until they, they get the bill paid. You know, on the agreed upon terms. So next question is for Stephen Harris, and this is on uh, expanding lighting for a microgreen setup when you only have one circuit to work with, and you're kind of at the limit of what that circuit can do for you. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question for the expert panel, and this is three in a row. I have another energy question related to microgreens. This is from Greg in Atlanta. He writes, Steve, I am beginning to hit the limit of my amp capacity for my indoor microgreens business. Can you please help me get the most out of a single 15-amp circuit? Details. I've started a microgreen business almost two years ago. I heard Luke Callahan on TSP with Jack, and I signed up for his book and his program. Okay, if you want to do what Greg's doing, and you'll see why in a bit, uh, Luke Callahan, C-A-L-L-A-H-A-N, is on episode 1526 of TSP. If you just go Google the Survival Podcast, Luke Callahan, you'll find it right away. His book and guide is called The Complete Guide to Growing and Selling Microgreens. It is not on Amazon. It is not in print. It's an ebook only. It's $64 for the, the book and it's d delivered digitally. It's on gumroad, g-u-m-r-o-a-d dot com. Again, 
just Google the, t- the title I told you, and you'll find it on Gum Road. Gun Gum Road, if I can say that. You'll find uh, Luke's Permaculture Voices video for free on making $2,000 a week on microgreens. You'll find a Facebook group dedicated to the subject and a world of many other things to read and watch. So I spoke to Luke several times, Greg goes on, and he's been very helpful getting me started and scaling up. So uh, Luke's like Jack and me. When we start having to type answers that are more than five or ten minutes long, we say, just give me your phone number, I'll call you. And it looks like Luke is doing that. My clients consist of the local chefs in my area that I custom grow specifically for them. I use my Honda Accord sedan to deliver the microgreens in coolers to the chefs. I'm beginning to run out of space in my car, though. Okay, Greg is making a solid $1,600 a month on just selling his microgreens to chefs that he grows in a room in his house with fluorescent lights. He charges between $250 and $5 per ounce. Per ounce! How he approached and found the chefs in the restaurants, uh, Greg says, are all explained in, in Luke Calhan's book. So Greg and I talked about him running out of room for his transportation because he has a Honda, small Honda Accord sedan. I told him just get a lightweight trailer, you know, simple two-wheel, 12-inch wheel, uh, lightweight trailer for his Honda. You know, they weigh about 400 pounds or less, and to put the coolers in the trailer. Uh, Greg goes on to say, I just listened to your response on keeping greens cool at a farmer's market. Although it doesn't specifically apply to my situation, I'm going to take those principles and try to fit them to my needs. Any other ideas you have would be greatly appreciated. Here's my current issue. Currently, I'm running Quantity 8 T5 fluorescent fixtures. Each fixture uses two... 55-watt bulbs, so 108 watts per fixture. I have the ability to turn on two more fixtures. However, when I do, my 15-amp circuit breaker will intermittently pop. So listen to this, folks. He's got two metal wire shelving units, like the ones you get from Costco. Four shelves per unit, so a total of eight shelves with one shop light over each shelf. The lights are at Home Depot. They take quantity two, four-foot bulbs, cost about $25 each. He uses two 54-watt bulbs. He's running 16 hours of light on, eight hours of light off. So that's 864 watts of fluorescent bulbs. If his electricity is 10 cents a kilowatt hour on his monthly electric bill, like it is in most of the United States, except for socialist California, his electric bill for his uh, illumination of his microgreens is only $42 a month. Bulbs must be 5,000 degrees Kelvin or brighter. And there are 6,500 degree Kelvin bulbs, and those would work as well. Not the 4,000 or 3,000 ones. Uh, you want between 4,000 and 5,000 lumens total per fixture or per shelf. Closer to 5,000 is better. We'll talk more about this in a bit. 
Okay, uh, Greg says, I also have a refrigerator that draws 6.5 amps on the same circuit and about 100 watts of LED, ce- LED ceiling lighting, but those aren't for growing. I think we found your problem here, Greg. Six and a half amps for a refrigerator is an old refrigerator. Go to Home Depot or Lowe's and get a simple, new, Ener- Energy Star compliant refrigerator. It will cost you about 400 bucks. You don't need a stainless steel one, and it will only draw one or two amps total when it's running. You'll get your money back on the fridge in a few years, but the big thing is it will free up more space on your single circuit for more electrical lighting. Here's some other things he's considered. Paying a lot of money to get permits and an electrician to add a new circuit, but potentially running into red tape with the local government, getting permits with a home-based business like this, blah, 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 okay? I understand this. He wants to stay under the radar while he's in his early phase. Some local cities have very strict zoning laws. If an electrician comes in and puts in, like, one new socket... The city inspector must come and inspect it. It's a racket. People in HOAs will also be wanting to avoid this. He can move the fridge to the adjacent garage, but it actually started out there, and he had humidity issues in the summertime with the refrigerator in the garage because he was opening and closing it so many times. Uh, or one of his options is to run an extension cord through my adjacent garage wall and grab power from a 20-amp circuit, or personally tap into this and add an outlet on the inside of the room from that circuit. My concern with this is the permit issue again. Although I'm fairly confident I can tackle the project safely, I am aware that if I don't do this right, I could increase my fire risk and may be excluded from my insurance if my house burns down. Uh, Greg, the fire risk from an extension cord is very low. Running an extension cord from a different circuit into your room is a very viable option while you are in your growth phase. If you're going to plug into a 20-amp circuit, you'll want an extension cable with 10 or 12-gauge wire. All of the orange ones you see at Home Depot are 14-gauge. The larger size size ones are on Amazon at a decent price, but they're not cheap. But they're also super durable, something your children won't hurt. The other thing Greg says he can do is invest some money in LED T5 bulbs. This will give me some amp headroom, but I will lose the residual heat that I use from the lamps in the colder weather. Okay, Greg, just add a small electric heater. Uh, Greg and I looked at Amazon while we were on the phone talking with each other, and there are 5,000 degree K, 2,500 lumen LED bulbs that draw about 22 watts each, putting out the light of a 54-watt bulb. So it's about half of a fluorescent light, and they are less than $15 each. There's a huge multitude of actual LED replacement lights on Amazon, like four-foot-long ones. Just remember the size, the color temp, and the lumens. A four-foot light fits on these shelves just perfectly. He sent me photos, and they are excellent. It's a very elegant setup. 
Also, he's not entirely convinced this will get his amp savings for the dollar amount spent. If it costs you $10 more per LED bulb than a fluorescent bulb, you'd get your money back in 285 days, running for 16 hours a day, 30 days a month. So, nine and a half months ROI. That's not bad. Your so your electric bill goes from 42 to 21 dollars. But when you're making 1600 per month, you're not doing this just for the cost savings. You're doing this to put more lights and more shells of microgreens on a single circuit. Greg actually has a higher cost of electricity during the peak day time hour, so his plants are in the dark during the afternoon and lit up by his lights in the evening and in the night. It's his world. He controls it. Greg and I talked about his expansion. He wants to add two to three more shelving units to his existing room and then start to expand into part of the garage. When he's selling all of his greens at this level, and he's he's going to go and consider... Excuse me. He's going to go and consider renting an industrial shop and get a full corporation going, have an employee or two. Right now, Greg is a stay-at-home husband. His wife does the 40-40-40 plan. I suggest that he automates everything from the start and that he use plenty of web cameras, HD ones, so he can always check in on his crops and his employees via his phone or computer. This is my third TSP answer about power for people growing microgreens. I love this subject because it's something you can do even in an apartment. For starting up, I'd not even go with LED lights. I'd go with a $25 shop light from Home Depot, well, four of them and a shelving unit, and uh, one light for each shelf, put a 5,000-degree K or 6,500-degree K bulbs in them, the cost of the, of the electricity is not a big issue here. Starting simple with a low cash outlay is the idea. If you guys like what I've said and you want to hear more from me, I got some outstanding videos I'm doing right now, one of which is on solar power that will blow your mind. A sign up for my newsletter, pretty please, at the top of Stephen1234.com. I don't spam. I don't always email that often but you'll be the first person to know what's going on. And once or twice a year, I open up uh, Steve's Power Circle, which is a group of people that help me do things, and they get to see the videos first, and they get them for free. Sign up, get on the email list first, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Um, I think running an extension cord makes the most sense out of everything there, but I do have another possible solution. You're, you're probably not saving that much money by running, you know, at nighttime and running off-peak hours, at least not enough that it would really kill your business if you didn't. So another really simple way that you could do this is have multiple timers, and you want to run your, your greens for 16 hours, but that doesn't necessarily need to be 16 continuous. So what you could do is just sit down with a, a pen and paper and you know figure out how many you want and how many you can run at once, and you've got 16 hours of run time, so you've got eight hours of play time in between there that you could stagger. And by doing a stagger, you would never be running all of them at the exact same time. You'd have this overlapping stagger that you could do. It would take a little figuring out how to do it, but you, you could do that. Then you could be on your one circuit, multiple timers, and all of them over a 24-hour period will get a total of 16 hours of light. 
but you would stagger some of your on-offs so that you ended up with, you know, running, let's say, you know, never running more than 50% or, or 70%, I should say about 70 to 75% should be doable of your to total. And that would be another way to do it. But if you can run an extension cord, dude, unless it's like going to be a problem, run an extension cord. Uh, it just seems like the easy thing. It's what I would do until you figure out how to grow beyond where you are right now. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one is for Gary Collins on Life in a Travel Trailer. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com, answering all your health and wellness, primal, paleo lifestyle, going off the grid, and simplified living questions. And one of my favorite topics today, travel trailers. I've been getting a lot of these. Um, and I have a section in my book where I talk about it as well, but this will be a a good answer to a pretty uh, uh, specific question. And this individual wants to know as far as if uh, the differences and if there's a sweet spot in you know a specific size and type of travel trailer or make. Before that, I want to get into a little bit of the of what he asked there. He goes, he's looking for a bumper style travel trailer. That means a tow behind. The difference between a tow behind and a fifth wheel. I want to get into that real quick because there's a lot of confusion. I know I was lost when I first started looking. Um, a fifth wheel is basically one that extends over the bed of your truck. So it goes into the bed of your truck and actually connects to a receiver that is bolted down inside of the bed of your truck right over your rear axle. These things weigh a couple hundred pounds. They take up a large part of your bed. That's the downside. Basically, it renders your bed, for the most part, useless for most things. Um, the advantage is it's much easier to, tr to tow because it distributes the weight right over your axles, which is a lot different than on your rear tow hitch, just a lot more stable. Um, most people who get fifth wheels, they get them when they're about, I would say, 30 foot or longer. Once you start getting into that range of travel trailer, that's when people jump to a fifth wheel because of the size. And also fifth wheels tend to be a lot, you can, they're taller, they're just bigger. So that's the biggest difference. Now a tow behind hooks up to your tow receiver at the back of your, of your truck or vehicle. Um, now he's going to be looking in Eastern Oregon, Washington, Northern Idaho, or that's Western Montana. That's where he's going to be. So He wants to know, you know, it's going to be him at first, another person and dog later. Now, is there a specific trailer or size that I would recommend? Well, it depends. Um, I have a 24-foot uh, travel trailer right now, and it's a Nash. It's plenty big for me and my dog. It has one pop-out or slide-out technically. Now, if I had another person in here, would it be fine? Sure. Would it be a little bit cramped? Well, maybe. It just depends what you're used to. I would probably recommend for two people, I would go to a 28-foot just because it'll give you more room. It gives you an extra slider, a slide-out, so you can have two. In some of them, you'll even get three slide-outs, depending. Now, when it comes to – I want to talk about a couple things, though, on a travel trailer kind of to help you because these are stuff, unless you've been living them or dealing with them for a while, you'll have no clue the differences – The first thing is the position of the kitchen to the bathroom. Now, you'll hear a lot of people or even the dealer will say, oh, you, you know, do you want a rear kitchen? Because uh, people usually like a rear kitchen. Here's why. One clean out. If your bathroom and your kitchen are to the rear of the travel trailer, 
you'll have one clean out, which is where your, your gray water and your black water attached to, and that's the, the pipe that goes out that is actually for your sewage. Now, why would that be a big deal? Oh, let me explain black, black water is your poo and pee. Gray water is your shower water. And, you know, if you have a washing machine, trust me, some of these have washing machines in them, stackables, um, or your, your sinks. That's where your gray water is. Usually you want to hold your black water for two to three weeks in the tank before you dispose of it. Cause if you don't, it won't break down. It'll get stuck in what we call the stinky slinky. Stinky slinky is the, the accordion type pipe that leads from that clean out and goes into a septic receptacle of some sort. Now, if you're dry camping, the dry camping means you have no water, you have no sewage connection. That's what those holding tanks are for. But even when you're connected, you want to hold your sewage. Trust me on this one. You will ruin that stinky slinky right out of the gate because all your poo is going to be stuck in that slinky because it hasn't decomposed. Actually, a lot of it won't even come out of the tank. So... Just a little hint there. And where I'm going with that is with two clean outs. So if your bathroom is separate from your kitchen and usually what will be is kitchen and rear bathroom will be mid to forward of the travel trailer. Well, they have to do the way the plumbing works just because it's too hard to get all that plumbing down to the rear is they put one up at the front of the travel trailer and one in the rear. These are a huge pain in the butt. If you don't mind it, that's one thing. I've had both. And I'll tell you what, the split cleanouts on both ends are a pain in the ass because you have to have triple the stinky slinky length. Those things are a pain in the butt to deal with anyways. They stink. They're nasty. And it just makes it really hard if you're going to be moving around and trying to get that whole section because you got to run that stinky slinky from one end of your travel trailer to the other, then to the receptacle, uh, wherever the clean or the sewage dump is. So that's just my two cents. I like one clean out at the rear of the trailer. It's just easier to use. Another thing is if you're a tall person or one of you's tall or both of you are tall, there's two different bed sizes. I found this out just recently. I figured, I thought they looked a little different. There, most of the, the, tw- I have a 24 foot. And like I said, plenty of room for me and my dog. Mine, depending on the layout too, my layout has what's called a queen short. Most of these will have queen or king, depending on the size, usually a queen. Now, a queen short is five inches shorter than a normal queen bed. I'm not a tall guy, so this was no big deal to me. So if you're tall, you better ask. Make sure that it's a normal size queen or your feet are going to be hanging off the edge. And I've heard a lot of people complain over the years, I hate travel trailer camp and my feet always, because it's the wrong size bed. They got a queen short. And uh, fifth wheels will usually have a king big, you know, and it'll be a normal size or a short. So just make sure. And here's another thing. The mattresses suck. I have yet to be in a travel trailer where the mattresses are anything more than three inches of foam and they break down within a week. I replaced mine with a memory foam mattress. It was like 200 bucks off Amazon. I cannot remember the name. I just got it because it had a bunch of great reviews and it was all RV people because it was a short. Thank God I measured before I ordered the thing. And uh, it, it didn't off gas and it just, I made sure to read all the reviews. The downside, it was made overseas, but I'll be honest with you, a lot of them were made overseas and then they put the wrapper on it, call it made in America. There are some made in America ones, 
but I didn't see anything that uh, had good enough reviews for me to buy, basically. I hate doing that. I'd rather buy American, but in this case, I didn't. And it's a great mattress. It's the best mattress I've ever had. Now, as far as, uh, you know, the price range. Now, the price range, whew, boy, you can go into 50s, 60s. Trust me, you got the money, they've got the travel trailer for you. But on average, you know, for a good all-season travel trailer, and that's another thing. I'll describe that a little bit later. You want an all-season or four-season that has more insulation in it. If you don't get one and it's a standard travel trailer, basically there's no insulation, and they're meant for camping on weekends a couple of times a year. Because if you live in it, you're going to cook in the summer, and you're going to freeze in the winter. So make sure if you're going to be like this guy's going to be in more up by where I live, he's going to be in harsher weather definitely get an all season. Now there's different all seasons too. Like uh, the difference between a Nash and an Arctic Fox, which is made by Northwood, which is a brand I like because they're made in Oregon. They're made for off-roading. They're tough. Um, is that they have R18, the Arctic Fox does in the ceiling. Now mine has R14 in the ceiling. So there is a difference. The Arctic Fox is made for more harsher environments. With that, it's nicer and it's got a steeper price tag. So for me, the money, bang for the buck, the Nash was the best, best deal. Now, far as maintenance, they're standard. Um, the only maintenance, just like a house. I mean, it's got an oven, it's got a stove, it's got a microwave, it's got sinks, it's got a toilet, shower. So the same things that could go wrong in your house can go wrong in a travel chair. It's got a refrigerator, freezer, but these things have been around forever. There's, you can get them fixed anywhere. There's replacements everywhere. Not a big deal. I've had no problems with any of my appliances. The maintenance that they usually need is the bearings in the axles need to be repacked every five to 10,000 miles or every couple years. Depending on what the dealer, uh, it, it'll be different for every travel trailer. Well, with mine, the Nash and the Arctic Fox, they come with an easy lube system where you don't even need to take it in. You can do it yourself. I really like that. And like I said, it's got better ground clearance for off-road stuff. So it's geared toward what I'm trying, what I want to do and what I do do. Now, a price range on average would be mid-20s to 40s. And it just depends what you want. But I will tell you this. You go buy one in the 40s, which is still a lot cheaper than any of those teeny homes. They're nice. It's going to be nicer, more than likely nicer than any home you've ever owned. They're crazy nice today. I can't even explain to you. I recommend going and looking at a bunch of them. Look at all the different sizes. There's a lot of different floor plans, different furniture. You know, you can have dual recliner leather chairs or you can have a couch. You know, the chairs can be at the rear. And like I said, there's so many different variants. Um, now, as far as if they're intended the higher end ones, a lot of people live in them. I, I lived in an RV park years ago and everyone at the RV park, this was in San Diego before I left, everyone lived in them, period. And the reason they were doing it is because it was A, cheaper and it was just a simpler life and that's what I found. Or it was people working in San Diego for like six months to a year and they didn't want to have to rent, buy a house or do any of that. They just stayed in their travel trailer. So these things, the good ones they're tough. I mean, they don't break down. I haven't had any issues. Um, they're built pretty well. Just think of like a mobile home. I mean, that's pretty much how they're built. Uh, 
So I hope that answers uh, your questions. I know that was long-winded, but there's a lot going on when it comes to getting your first travel trailer. And if you don't know what you're looking for, it, it's it, it's a zoo out there. I mean, I, I couldn't even explain to you how many manufacturers there are. There's so many, um, but that's the ones I recommend. Also, guys, I have a new podcast, and I'll probably go over this topic as well. Uh, old Dudes, New Tricks, and make sure to go get my book, Going Off the Grid. I talk about travel trailer and travel trailer living in there as well. Thanks again. You know, I'm big on agreement with Gary with like looking on as many different ones as you can. And one of the things to check into, uh, depending on where you live, there's probably somewhere nearby at least once a year an RV show. And, um, We had a lot of fun going to RV shows, even if we weren't looking to buy one. Just looking at all the different things and models and makes and walking around and eating some junk food and stuff like that. And usually there's some other stuff that's there along the way. Uh, it's kind of like going to a boat show or something like that or a home home improvement show. Um, a lot of fun. And I don't know anywhere else you can see as many different makes and models uh, in in one day. Uh, than doing that. And they're usually five or ten bucks to get in. And if you're going to buy one, it's totally worth it because it's kind of worth it to spend a day just looking at it. Because, you, you know, when you're not going to buy one, you know what you go look at. You look at the stuff like half-million-dollar motor coaches and stuff like that. I will say this. Uh, if you go to the one in Dallas, I think I already had it this year. I'm not sure. But if you go to the one in Dallas, um, at Dallas Market Hall, do not go on Sunday because Texas is stupid. Yes, Texas is freaking stupid. We still have some remnant blue laws, and one of them is automotive dealerships can't be open on Sunday. What does that matter, you say? You can't go look at any of the, the like the Class A's or Class C's, the ones that you drive on a Sunday at the freaking RV show because Texas is freaking stupid. Somebody in Austin that listens to this show that's in the legislature, I know there's more than one of you. Fix that stupidity. That is moronic. It is costing your state money, you idiots. Just a little jack rant there for you since you're not going to hear much from me today. But yeah, that's a true story. Texas is flipping stupid with their remnant blue laws. My God. Yeah, you can't. You go to an RV show, you pay to get in, there's a beautiful motor coach there, can't go look at it because it's considered automotive dealership under Texas's archaic stupid freaking law. So how do we get my blood pressure now? We talk about something good to eat. How about mini quiches made with duck eggs? Chef Keith, tell us all about that. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. Lisa, I wanted to talk to you about making some mini quiches. Now, I hear that you've got some ducks and they're cranking out the eggs. Definitely jealous over here. That's an awesome thing. And you're talking about um, instead of using the eggs to feed other creatures, you're going to want to make some value-added products to bring to your farmer's market. That is pretty cool. Now, I'm not sure... I was looking at your email address. It said something about Goshen Valley, I'm, and I'm assuming that's in upstate New York. And if it is, that's cool because when I was a kid, a young boy, probably, I don't know, from maybe the age of five to ten, my uh, uncle had a really large dairy, Holsteins, uh, there in Goshen, New York. And uh, it's funny the things you remember as a kid, but had the big red barns and the tractors, and I used to love going in those barns and smelling the hay and um, riding on the tractor. They 
grew tons of corn on the property and they had a house with an intercom. It was a huge house and there's dumb things you remember, but I remember the intercom on the wall that you could talk to someone on the other side of the house and they had a swimming pool, but Goshen was a really beautiful place. They wound up selling uh, that farm and they um, bought a, I don't know, two or three times the size farm down in Carlisle, Pennsylvania in Dutch country. So, um, yeah, we, we no longer could go to Goshen. We wound up going to, to, um, the Amish country, which was cool. But to your question about the mini quiches, um, I love quiche. It's a great, you know, old school dish, you know, quiche Lorraine, things like that. Just, um, make a guy that cooks get all giddy. So how about some mini quiches? Now you're talking about making them in muffin tins. Now I'm going to suggest that you make them crustless and you certainly could go through the time, but when you're, Making crust and trying to put it in those um, average uh, muffin tins, you don't get enough quiche in there, and it winds up just being kind of a crust bomb. So particularly with the paleo people, because your idea was making some paleo and then some you know, vegetarian ones. Let me give you some ideas for, for paleo. Um, one of my favorite things is fennel sausage. Now, this is not something you're going to find, and you may have Wegmans. If you're in upstate New York, you may have access to Wegmans market. You might be able to find them there, but good fennel sausage. I mean, it's such a simple thing in in a lot of places, but then, you know, where we are, I mean, you can't find, these corporations have taken over, and it's just plastic, you know, fake, um, what do you call those things? Casings. <laughs> the casings aren't real anymore. The, and you can look at them and see there. What's it made from? I don't know. Cornstarch. I mean, who the hell wants a sausage with a cornstarch casing? And a lot of those big brands, I won't mention the name from the Midwest. That stuff is terrible. It's not, not even sausage anymore with, with a corn syrup in it and all kinds of crap. Find some good, you talked about high end people. Find some good fennel sausage somewhere. Find an artisan that's making good sausage. And if you get an Italian sausage that's got real fennel in it and good spice, it is amazing. And that would be the start of your first little uh, quiche here. So take some of your fennel sausage, and you're going to saute it with shallots. You won't really need any fat because there's probably plenty of fat in it. But shallots, fennel sausage, good shaved Parmesan cheese. You can put that, um, you know, you're going to whip up your, your duck eggs into, you know, scrambled eggs and then put this ingredients, put the sausage, the shallots, some Parmesan cheese into, you know, a tray of your muffin tins and pour in your, your duck egg mixture. And you can make sure that's seasoned. You don't want to mix up a bunch of eggs <clears throat> without any salt and pepper because Probably not going to taste that good. So make sure that you have that seasoned up. And if you're not sure, if you're making a lot, um, you can always just, you know, scoop out enough and, and cook in it, cook like a scrambled egg with that mix and taste it. Make sure it's seasoned because you really can't add seasoning to quiche later. So that would be my first suggestion. Um, and you could also do something like putting in a little, um, kale or, or collard greens into that mixture. Next. Diced ham, aged cheddar, and scallions. Now, just take a skillet, a little bit of butter, start with the ham, and cook it until it has a little color on it. I'm not talking about golden brown, but just picking up a little caramelization uh, on the pan. And then toss in your scallions, cook that, and then put those two ingredients into your muffin tins 
with a high-quality English-aged cheddar. And you know something is high-quality and aged long enough when it starts to crumble, like when you're trying to grate it and just wants to crumble. That's not a sign of bad cheese. That's actually a sign of, of really good aged cheese. Now, the younger and cheaper and more crappy the cheese is, that's the stuff, you know, you go from the crumbly cheese I just described all the way down to craft singles, which are rubbery and kind of limp. So that, that's how you know you're getting to the better cheeses. The longer they're aged, the more expensive they are, and they tend to get a little drier in the middle, but their flavor is intense. So good aged cheddar, scallions and ham with your duck eggs whipped up will make awesome little quiches. And how about good bacon Again, with good cheddar cheese, or you could use anything. You could use some brie cheese with red bell pepper. That makes a really great, um, you know, paleo type um, quiche. Now, going on to some veggies. Now, you said vegetarian. You didn't say vegan, so I'm going to keep on with the cheeses because I think cheese in, in quiche is terrific. You don't always have to have it, but I really like it. So scallions, red pepper, Diced up broccoli and not, remember, these are mini, mini uh, quiches, so small bits of broccoli and don't use frozen. It's got to be fresh. You could also use broccolini, which has a little bit more uh, bitterness to it. So scallion, red pepper, broccoli, the cheese of your choice, Parmesan, could be anything, Gruyere, um, your duck eggs. That's an awesome idea there for a vegetarian quiche. And then kale, um, take butternut squash and slice Slice it into um, or dice it up into probably little quarter-inch pieces. Roast it in a skillet with some olive oil and fresh thyme until it's starting to get golden brown. And then you can just take your chopped kale, toss that on top, cook it four or five minutes. Sun-dried tomatoes, some of those in there. You put that in the into the little um, cups, add your duck egg mix. That's going to be an awesome quiche. Then something a little more simple, um, leeks. Potatoes and Gruyere cheese. Now take the white part from the leeks. Make sure you're super anal about washing it because that stuff can hide the grit. And I'd be lying if I didn't admit to you that I've shortcutted it a few times. Ah, just dropped it in some water. That looks good. And later on had, uh, luckily it was just my wife, by going chewing sand in her teeth. And that's, that's just something you can't escape. If you get sand in your teeth, the meal is wrecked. She didn't divorce me, so that's that's no problem. But if you're using leeks, make sure you slice the whites in half and separate each piece. Make sure there's nothing hiding in there. Slice those up into very thin slices. And then you're going to want to take potatoes, and these need to be um, probably cooked ahead of time because it's not going to they probably won't cook. You can't take a big chunk of a potato and put it into a muffin tin and cook it 25 minutes because it'll still be hard. So what I would do is probably um, dice the potatoes, roast them on a sheet tray until they're golden brown, and, and you could pierce them with a knife, and they're um, yielding. You don't want them to be mush, but you want them to be yielding. Then you mix that with your leeks. I would say a good Gruyere cheese, and you're good to go. You could even put a little chili flake, red chili flake in that, or even if you want a little color, some red bell pepper. So there is three veggie ideas, and uh, is it three? Yeah, three paleo-type ideas. Hopefully your quiches will become much better, and you'll uh, make your, your people at the market happy. I hope that helped, Lisa. If you need any 
uh, more assistance, feel free to email me, Keith at harvesteating.com. I do answer tons of questions um, throughout you know, the, the weeks of every month from you folks in TSP land. Happy to help where I can. And I also wanted to let everybody know um, that the course, Food Storage Feast, the adjusted price now is $97. If you're MSB, don't forget to um, log into your benefits section because the link there for the course has an even um, discounted price from 97 for you MSB. And I wanted to mention I am now working on another course coming soon. It's going to be a paleo beef course. And uh, I'm a couple of recipes and videos into it already, and it is going to be a much smaller sort of bite-sized course, so to speak, about 15 um, videos, everything you'll need to know about making tremendous paleo beef dishes. And uh, the other night we were testing the short ribs with a shallot and tomato ragu, and they had a um, cauliflower, little um, cauliflower and cream cheese mash underneath them. Dude! those were money. So be looking out for that course, folks. And anybody that's an existing student is going to get a, a very nice discount on the beef course. Anyway, I want to thank you for your questions. It is very fun to answer some of them. Um, so keep them coming. And um, Jack, thanks for what you do. And I hope everybody has a great weekend. Take care. And now you're hungry, and so am I. And I'm looking at my ducks and thinking, make me an egg, man, so I can go in there and cook it. Because most of my eggs are getting sold now. I'm not getting many of my own eggs right now. But I think I'll be sequestering a few next week when we get out from under this uh, this this week that we're having ahead of us right now. And uh, maybe try making up some quiches. I've actually never done quiche with duck eggs. I've never done quiche in a long time. So seems like a good idea. Good stuff from Chef Keith Snow. Anyway, um wanted to uh, tell you about our TSP Amazon item of the day. You know, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can support us is to shop Amazon through tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You'll see a link to the Amazon deals of the day. You can check those out. You can shop Amazon from there. And anything you buy, once you click one of our affiliate links, you know, we'll get paid for. So that's a way you can support us easily no matter what you're going to buy. But I do review items of the day every day. Today I have an Encore item because, well, it's the week that it is. And it's also because I think it was a, a good one. And it's the Winchester 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set. Uh, this is a great deal. Since the first time I, re I, I reviewed it, it's gone up 5 bucks. It used to be $10. Now they're like 15 It's still a great deal. Uh, it's got you know most of the common driver bits that you'll need, a hand driver, a couple extensions. It's really cool. It's compact. Very, very affordable. And the other reason I did it is, you know, I, I've been doing these reviews of items for your gunsmithing kit uh, in 2017. And when I reviewed this the first time, we hadn't started that yet. So if you're doing that, if you've bought the gunsmith box and you're putting the stuff in it, this is something you want to uh, to have in there as well. But I think you should kind of overlook the word gunsmith in this uh, and see it as, okay, does that too. Because these are a great thing to throw in the, the glove box of a truck or to have in your go bag or your bug out bag or, you know, in your dry storage on your boat, if you have a boat, because there's always that one thing you need to do and you, maybe your Leatherman won't do it because it's like a torque bit or something. It doesn't have all the torque bits, but it has seven of them and they're the most common ones. And the one where you thought it was a Phillips and then you looked at it and you're like going shit and damn it and you're angry because you don't have what you need to turn that stupid thing that can fix your problem. It probably is one of those. Because they're the most common ones. Again, it's a great tool, well made. 
Um, this was a, a top 25 item from 2016 in items that I sold on Amazon. And that means a lot of them were bought. And it, I ain't heard a complaint, not one. And I'm telling you, when I recommend something, if something goes wrong, I hear about it, even if it's not an angry person. Like, just wanted you to know, man, that I got one of these and, you know, broke and I sent it back and I got it replaced or whatever. And that's usually what happens. Like, so you buy electronics and stuff like that. Every once in a while, you get one DOA out of the box. It just happens. But they'll let me know. But they'll also let me know, yeah, the, the vendor took care of it or whatever. Um, because if, if something like that happens, I want to know. You know, I want to know because then I'm going to take that down as a recommendation if somebody doesn't get taken care of. Or if it's like, it's still a great product. I've used a bunch of them. I haven't had a problem. One guy, I'm going to note it. Like, you know, the problem is, like, if you do have a problem, they don't take care of it. Uh, I want to always, you know, be completely above board with all of my reviews on Amazon. Uh, this one is, is a product I've recommended for a long time, and it's just too useful And if I knew of a product for the money that was as good, I'd recommend that one instead. I don't. That's why I recommend this one. I try to bring you the best of the best. Time for our song of the day. Song of the day today is um, was released, of course, in 1974, as we've been doing. And we're trying to find songs that typify the time, because the number one song of the year keeps getting worse and worse the longer we go. And up until the 90s, I can't even do it. I'm not playing freaking Macarena. It's not going to happen. So John Adams stepped up and started picking out you know, songs for me and give me a little background information on them. And this one's from Kiss, and it's called Strutter. Here's what, uh, <clears throat> here's what John says about this uh, particular song. Um, <clears throat> the third single off their debut album, Snopes of All Wed Sites, has a good write-up on this Kiss name controversy. I'll read that in the middle in a minute. It could just as easily mean keep it simple stupid. As a child of the 70s and 80s, I remember Kiss as being creepy and extreme. But as an adult, I laugh at the slow tempo and simple music. In my opinion, Gene Simmons is an average musician, but a savvy businessman. I will say that Kiss now puts on a very fun and family-friendly concert. I was amazed that I never heard one swear word or disrespect uttered during the whole performance. Yeah, I think the whole Kiss thing was an act. And on that note, I want to read to you the Snopes write-up on what does Kiss stand for. Those of you that grew up in the 70s and 80s may know that there was this rumor that KISS stood for Knights in Satan's Service. So here's what Gene Simmons, I'm not going to read the whole write-up, just what Gene Simmons said in his uh, biography about that particular subject. He says, Misinformation about the band began to spread in the southern Bible Belt states, including a rumor that the name KISS stood for Knights in Satan's Service and that the four of us were devil worshippers. Ironically, this rumor started as a result of an interview I gave in Circus Magazine after our first album in response to a question. I said that I sometimes wondered what human flesh tastes like. I never really wanted to find out, but I was curious intellectually. Later on, this comment seemed to ignite the whole idea that in some way Kiss was aligned with devil worship. When I was asked whether I worshiped the devil, I simply refused to answer for a number of reasons. The first reason, of course, was that it was good press. Let people wonder. The other reason was my complete disregard for the people who were asking. Through the years, whenever religious fanatics accosted me, especially in southern states, and quoted the Old Testament at me, I would quote them back, chapter and verse. They didn't know that I had been a theology major in school, and an idiot is an idiot whether he quotes the Bible or not. So this is from the Snoops article, and it says, why did, Kiss choose, why did they choose Kiss? According to Simmons, the adoption of the name was surprisingly quick and mundane. This is also from Gene Simmons' book. One day, Paul Stanley and Peter Chris and I were driving around, brainstorming for new names. I had thought of a few like Albatross, but wasn't happy with any of them. 
At one point, we were stopped at a red light, and Paul said, How about Kiss? Peter and I nodded, and that was it. It made sense. Hindsight is 2020, of course. And since then, people have talked about the benefits of the name, how it seemed to sum up certain things about glam rock at the time, how it was perfect for international marketing because it was a simple word people understood all over the world. world but we just liked the name, and that was that. So it, this really does – I actually have been very impressed with what I've seen out of Gene Simmons from his reality show. I've not watched a lot of it, but a little bit here and there. And when he was on The Apprentice, as a business person, as a business person, And uh, so I'll tell you a quick story. If you didn't see The Apprentice when, when Gene was on, they had to sell hot dogs. It was the opening challenge. I think it was the first Celebrity Apprentice ever when they actually had celebrities on Celebrity Apprentice. You didn't have to look up who they were to know who they were. And uh, all these guys are like fumbling around trying to figure out these ways to, 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 you know, to get hot dogs to sell faster on the street. So Gene just sits there looking at them all. And finally, he just picks up his cell phone. He makes a call. And once they realize he's making a call, everybody looks at him. He goes, he calls somebody. I'm going to say it was Tommy. You know, Hey, Tommy, this is Gene Simmons. Now, we're doing a hot dog sale for a charity. Could you come down here and buy a hot dog for like 200 bucks or something like that uh, tomorrow to help support our charity? You can? Thanks a lot. Here's where it's going to be. He tells them where it's going to be. I can count on you, right? Yeah. Okay, thanks, man. Hangs the phone up, sets it down, and looks at everybody like they're idiots. Now, I know it's not reality TV, and it might have been scripted, but I kind of don't think so. I kind of don't think that was scripted. I think that was Gene being Gene. And Gene, I think, saw the whole glam rock thing really emerging. And Kiss was kind of iconic for it. Uh, not quite yet to the hair bands of the 80s, but Kiss kind of, the reason I think this is a good choice for this year, this was a, a switch in music and a switch in the way that music was marketed. And I'll tell you what else it was. It was really the beginning of kids from our generation, when I say our generation, I mean my generation, a little older than me, my age and a little younger, freaking out their parents by what they listen to. Like, the hippie era is really coming to an end. The bell bottoms are still around and shit like that, but, like, the flower child thing and all is kind of going away because there's not this rallying point behind the Vietnam War going to be around for much longer. And generational, you know, shock, I guess, is, is an old thing. There's always been something. I mean, if you can think of what the... What people thought, the, the older generation thought of the freaking flappers in the 20s. I mean, my God, they were, they were crazy in devil worship and all this other crap. So that's always been there. And I know when I was a kid and I had my long curly freaking hair and I wore my rock concert t-shirts and my old jeans and stuff like that. And the older people that looked at me and were like a little like, like I kind of liked it. I kind of liked being a little bit of a rebel. And I think that's what Kiss was, was grabbing onto, was the rebellious nature of this emerging generation, Generation X. Here you go, Shrutter from, from Kiss. With that, I hope you have a great weekend. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't.